The great uh, 19th century English preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, I may know all the doctrines of the Bible, but unless I know Christ, there is not one of them that can save me. Long before Jesus ever arrived on the earth in the form of a man, the Jewish people were watching and waiting for him to come. Fact is, there is as many as 400 ancient prophecies in the Old Testament scriptures concerning the Messiah. And so for centuries before he actually arrived, the Jews were not only watching and waiting for him to show up, but they were also diligently studying those very scriptures about him and then teaching those scriptures to others. The, the same scriptures that describe Jesus and the work that he would accomplish in this world. So when he finally did show up, you would think that they not only would have recognized him, but embraced him as their savior. Because they all knew the scriptures about him. They knew the prophecies. They knew the doctrines. These were God's people. And so if anyone was going to recognize his son, surely it would be the Hebrews. And yet the sad truth is, the vast majority of them missed it completely. They failed to recognize the very person they'd fashioned their entire lives and culture to reflect. And despite the profound and undeniable impact that Jesus has clearly had on the earth since then, it remains true today that the majority of not only the Jewish community, but humanity in general continues to overlook the person and work of Jesus as the Messiah. And so interestingly, uh, for, the, for the religious Jews at least, they're still waiting for the Messiah to come. 2,000 years after Jesus came, after his arrival on earth, and I shared this back in April at Palm Sunday, the writings of the 12th century Rabbi Mamoinides. He's one of the most prolific and influential Torah scholars of the Middle Ages. He wrote this in the Mishnah Torah concerning the Messiah. Anyone who does not believe in him or who does not wait for his arrival has not merely denied the other prophets, but has also denied the Torah and Moses, our rabbi. And that was written nearly 1,200 years after the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, we don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah, and so we're still waiting for him to come. The same people who were supposed to know more about him than anyone. The same people whose lives and community and culture were fashioned around a messianic expectation for God's chosen ones. Those same people failed to recognize the Messiah while he was standing right there in front of them. In fact, Jesus said to them, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. John 5, 39 and 40. It's difficult to understand how the balance of God's chosen people, the ones who claim to belong to him, could fail to recognize who Jesus was and the work he was accomplishing in the earth while he was right there among them. And yet, uh, before we get too judgmental about that, I think we have to ask ourselves, honestly, if Jesus were to show up on the earth in the form of a man today, how many of us would actually recognize him? Because I can tell you this, just as Jesus didn't fit in with the popular culture in the first century, he doesn't fit in with our popular culture today. In fact, he never has, because he routinely says things that offend people. He demands that anyone who would follow him must leave everything else behind. 
Who wants to do that? He, he promises hardships and persecutions and, and rejection from the world for those who would become his disciples. And he says, if you want to be first in this world, then you have to become last. Everything Jesus taught was antithetical, uh, incompatible with the philosophies and teachings of the culture around him. Listen, including the religious culture. And although I think we tend to believe that we know so much more about Jesus today than they did then, the truth is our behavior often betrays that notion. Look, I, I know uh, professing believers, lots of them, who are deeply judgmental of other people. In fact, the truth is sometimes I'm one of them. It's so easy to reject people who are not like us or don't act like us or don't do what we think they should do. And actually, there's a name for people who think that way. In the Bible, they were called Pharisees. That was the polite name. Jesus referred to them as a brood of vipers or whitewashed tombs. You can read all about that in Matthew chapter 23. God help us. At the other end of the spectrum, there's a lot of professing Christians today who believe that moral truth or justification, even biblical truth, is relative to a culture or a society. In other words, uh, what is true, even what is true in the Bible, can and should be adjusted, tweaked, changed to fit our culture as it changes. And of course, the people who believe that have spread that message throughout the modern church like a disease. It's the opposite end of the spectrum, the idea that almost anything goes as long as it's true for you, then it has to be true for God as well. The Bible refers to those folks as false prophets. Jesus preferred to call them wolves in sheep's clothing. You can read about that in Matthew 7. God help us. You understand the people at both of those extremes have always believed that they know the way to the truth even though they're nowhere near the way to the truth because the truth can only be found, listen, the truth can only be found on a very narrow path which is why immediately before he describes the wolves in Matthew 7, uh, actually in the preceding two verses, in fact, Jesus says the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. You see, we're not called to live the easy way, the popular way, the, the way we would prefer it. No, Jesus said his way is the hard way. It is narrow, and those who find it are few. Well, why is it hard? Why is it narrow? Because, because his way, what he wants for us, is actually not what we want for ourselves. We know what we want for ourselves, and we know how we want it, and we know when we want it, but that's not how Jesus works. In fact, it's just the opposite. Jesus says, first, you have to die to what you want, how you want it, and when you want it, and then submit yourself to my work in your life, and then I'll do what I want to do in you, and I'll do it in my own way, and I'll do it in my own timing. And listen, he doesn't really open that up for discussion or interpretation. The fact is, it is a very narrow path and not an easy one to follow, which is exactly why few people find it, because it is narrow 
and difficult, but listen, it is always the perfect work of Christ in your life that shapes you and strengthens you and builds you up as you follow him on that narrow, difficult path, which, by the way, is fraught with danger and profound risk to your personal health and safety and overall well-being. If you don't believe that, just read about the lives of the apostles after the resurrection and ascension of the Christ. It is not an easy way, but it is the perfect way. As we'll see in our story today, as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the gospel according to Mark, and I just want to make sure you understand, when we talk about the narrow path, what makes it narrow is not a list of do's and don'ts. That's the mistake that most religious people make. They think the narrow road that Jesus talks about, the one that leads to life, they think it's narrow because of all the things you can and cannot do, right? That, which makes the path quite restrictive, quite narrow. That's actually not it at all. No, what makes the narrow road narrow is not a list of rules. What makes the narrow road narrow is the truth. What is actually true is very narrow indeed. In fact, Jesus left no wiggle room whatsoever when it came to the truth, which means we don't have the luxury of interpreting truth however we want to or however it happens to uh, suit our personal preferences or convictions, although that's exactly what many people do today. They want to believe in Jesus, but not the truth, the narrow truth that he actually taught, and so they follow their own version of the truth, whether that's based on a set of religious rules or the popular sentiment in our culture based on whatever feels right at any given point along the way. And listen, in between those two is a big, wide, open road. Yet Jesus said, that's not the way. In fact, he said, it's my way or the highway. And for sure, the highway is wide and fast and it's busy with people because it is by far the easier road to travel on and it leads straight to hell. Or you can take the narrow road. It's more of a path, really. It winds its way up the mountain toward the cross. It's not an easy path to follow and there won't be nearly as many people on it, but if you'll follow me on that narrow road, I will work out my perfection in your life as you go. It won't be easy to be sure. It won't always be what you want or how you want it or when you want it. It is not the easy way, but it is the perfect way. This is the life lesson his disciples were beginning to learn, as we'll see in our story today, as Jesus finally makes his way into the great city of Jerusalem. So let's read it together. We'll pick up the story where we left off last time at Mark chapter 11, and we'll begin by reading the first 11 verses. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. 
And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they'd cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve in order to fully understand what was happening here as Jesus enters Jerusalem. We need to understand the mood of the day, okay? So I'm going to give you a bit of backstory that should help set the scene here for us before we really dive into the text. In 198 BC, the Seleucid Empire took control of all Judea, and as a result, under the brutal reign of Antiochus III, the Jews were forced to forsake their own Hebraic culture and religion in favor of the Hellenistic Greek culture of the day. In fact, uh, in fact, it was Antiochus's personal mission to Hellenize the Hebrew people, meaning to, to turn their religious culture into the popular Greek culture of the time, and to make matters worse, in 168 BC, his son Antiochus IV invaded Jerusalem and captured the city. And in every town, he had altars erected to Greek gods. And then he passed a law that anyone who did not pray to those pagan gods and convert from practicing Judaism to Hellenism would be summarily put to death. And yet worst of all, he marches right into the Jewish temple erects a statue of the Greek god Zeus, and then sacrifices a pig on the altar of incense. Proved to be the straw that broke the camel's back as Antiochus sends some of his officers to the town of Modayin to enact his new pagan laws. And the chief Seleucid officer was met there by a local country Jewish priest named Mattathias, which would turn out to be a portentous meeting, a, a foreboding of things to come as the local country priest was ordered to fulfill his duty to the state by being the first man in that town to sacrifice an animal on the altar of a pagan idol. But Mattathias had had enough. He had other ideas, in fact, and so he refused to do what the Seleucid officer commanded him to do. And so when another Jewish man who was more than happy to oblige the Seleucid officer steps forward to make the required sacrifice, Mattathias promptly kills the complicit Jew and slaughters the enemy officers as well, just for good measure. And then, after tearing down the pagan idol, Mattathias turned to his fellow Jews and said, and I'm quoting from 1 Maccabees 2.27, he said, let everyone who is zealous for the law and who stands by the covenant follow me. And then, along with his sons, John, Simon, Judah, Eleazar, and Jonathan, Mattathias rallied the Jewish population, and in 167 B.C., the Jewish people rose up with Mattathias as their leader and recruiting the very toughest men among them, Mattathias and his sons soon become known as the Maccabees, which is the ancient Hebrew word for the hammer. They went on to wage a guerrilla war against their oppressors at first taking back the northern villages of Judea where they systematically slaughtered and drove out the enemy, tore down the altars of the pagan idols and killed those who worshipped them, including the Hellenistic Jews who had converted. And then in 166 BC, Mattathias dies, and yet just before his death, 
He left his son Judah in charge of his army, a man who proved to be a brilliant and fearless general, just like his father. And then finally, not long after the death of Mattathias, the war between the Jews and the Seleucid Empire comes to a head. We're outnumbered five to one. Judah looking at the masses of enemy warriors before him, 60,000 strong. He stops and prays to God for victory, and then he leads his men straight into one of the most impossible battles in all of Jewish history, utterly defeating Antiochus and his entire army and driving them out of the Jewish lands. And so on December 25th, 165 BC, after months of work clearing and cleaning, the temple was finally rededicated to God and the Jews celebrated for eight days straight, which is known to this day as the celebration of Hanukkah. And this hard-won Jewish self-rule over Palestine would prove to last about 100 years until Pompey, an acclaimed Roman general, captured the Jewish Holy Land, bringing it uh, under Roman occupation, of course, and rule. Which brings us to Jesus' day. First century AD in Palestine, where keep in mind, the Jewish people are only one generation removed from the hard-won freedom they experienced because of the hard uh, and heroic efforts of the Maccabees. So you understand, uh, this was not only the mindset of the day among the Jewish people, this was specifically at the forefront of their collective conscience as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a colt, the foal of a donkey, which was the fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, 500 years earlier, concerning the Jewish Messiah they were all waiting for. Because this man who's been roaming the villages and countryside, healing otherwise incurable diseases, giving sight to the blind, casting out legions of demons, feeding thousands of people with a single basket of food and commanding the weather itself, right? If the Maccabees could drive the enemy occupiers out of their land, then surely this Jesus, this man who has authority over sickness and demons and the laws of nature, surely he can drive the Romans out of their land as well. And again, that's exactly what they were thinking as Jesus finally makes it to Jerusalem, the holy city, as the people who were there recognize the Passover come to gather and welcome Jesus and celebrate his almost certain victory over the Romans. Mark describes the crowd as many. John describes it as a large crowd. Scholars actually estimate it to have been over two million people. And they're throwing their cloaks down on the road before them. They're cutting palm branches and throwing them down on the road as well. They're also waving them in the air because palm branches symbolized Jewish nationalism and victory in their culture. In fact, images of palm branches were even stamped on the temple coins dating all the way back to the time of the Maccabees, whereupon their great victory over the Syrian kingdom, the Seleucids, the crowds celebrated by pulling palm branches off the trees and waving them in the air signifying their military triumph over that Syrian kingdom, the Seleucids, which again uh, confirms for us the mindset and expectations of these two million Jews toward Jesus as he rides into the city that day while they once again wave these palm branches in the air. Uh, incidentally, that's also why we call it Palm Sunday. And on top of all that, 
They were shouting a couple of verses from Psalm 118, which is one of the Psalms of Ascent. It's also the final chapter of the Hillel. It's a well-known Jewish prayer, which recalls a great procession into Jerusalem after God delivered his people from their enemies. So again, there's no doubt about the state of mind of the millions of Jews who were celebrating Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And it was well known at the time that any time a foreign dignitary or ruler would enter a city, they would typically head straight to the local temple to pay homage to the gods of that city. And so in true to form, Jesus rides into Jerusalem and heads straight to the temple. And so up to this point, everything is going according to their plan, right? Until Jesus makes his next move. Mark says Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple and when he looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Now, wait a minute. Jesus, you just came from Bethany. You just got here. You're surrounded by adoring fans chanting and singing and making a really big entrance into Jerusalem. In fact, it was such a big commotion, the religious leaders of the city came out to see what was going on and commanded Jesus to quiet the people down, according to Luke's account of this same story. So you know that all of these people were surely with them when he went to the temple, right? It wasn't like uh, they just left and all went home after he rode into the city. No way. No, they wanted to see what was going to happen, and so this massive crowd of people making all kinds of racket with expectations soaring in the clouds, they almost certainly followed Jesus right up to the temple, and you know what they're thinking. This is it. Here we go. This is, this is the moment we've all been waiting for, and following him right up to the temple. Can't you just picture them standing there in anticipation, chanting and singing this great victory song as Jesus enters the temple. And then he looks around, decides it's getting late, walks back out and says to his disciples, let's go home, boys. And they head right back out of the city to the very place they just came from. In fact, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha lived in Bethany. That is most assuredly where they went to stay for the night. He doesn't, he doesn't lead the mob to overthrow the Roman fortress. He doesn't confront the leaders in Jerusalem. He doesn't even address the crowd or give an inspirational speech. He just looks around and he leaves. Talk about a letdown. Theologian William Lane Craig says, what a disappointment for those who had hailed his entry. What kind of Messiah was this? What sort of a deliverer is this? In the ensuing days, Jesus did cleanse the temple, but he didn't raise a finger against the Romans. In fact, he didn't even raise his voice against them. Instead, he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, Mark 12, 17. Who needs a king like this? So all the celebration, all the anticipation, all the build-up to this great moment when Jesus and his disciples turn around and head back to Lazarus' house to see what's for dinner. This had to be not only a tremendous shock uh, for the masses of people, but a tremendous letdown as well. And listen, not only for them, but for his most ardent followers, the 12 disciples more than anyone, as they were having to learn that Jesus doesn't always work when we want him to, but his timing is always perfect. In fact, by going straight to the temple, Jesus was actually fulfilling the prophecy in Malachi 3.1, which referring to the Messiah says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. 
The truth is Jesus was doing exactly what he was supposed to do, exactly when he was supposed to do it, and yet that is not what the people wanted. What a letdown, right? How can we get excited? How can we get on board with where you're leading us, Jesus, when you don't do what we want when we want it? Of course, we don't ever feel that way today. You know, those times when, when you know for certain that God has something planned for your future, a particular ministry, a particular relationship, or a vocation that will finally allow you to express the gifts and talents he's given you. Maybe it's a promise for your life, and you've been waiting on the fulfillment of that promise to come to pass, and yet sometimes in those waning days, while we wait for that fulfillment, that ministry opportunity, that relationship, that healing, or that career possibility, in those interim hours between the promise and the fulfillment, we work out all the details for God so that all he has to do is show up and check off the items on our list that we've created for him and then we can walk into our destiny once and for all. We just need him to work on our schedule. Except for the fact that God isn't beholden to our schedule, is he? He doesn't consult or consider our personal calendar when performing his perfect work in our lives because listen, we have, to, we have to get this. God isn't, he doesn't just know the beginning and the end and everything in between. Do you understand? He is the beginning and the end and everything in between. Which means whatever he does in our lives is not only going to happen according to his perfect timing, but it's going to happen according to who he is, the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, Revelation twenty two thirteen. That's why Jesus didn't say, come up with your best plan and then call me if you need me. No. Over and over and over again, he said, come follow me, because apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, 5, which, listen, that is a very narrow path to have to follow. It's a very narrow truth, isn't it? But you have to follow it if Jesus is going to accomplish his perfect work in your life, and yet people don't like a narrow path. They want the wide road, right? The, the freeway is nice and wide. It has lots of lanes to choose from, lots of different truths to choose from, while the path up the mountain only has one lane to choose from, one truth which is what makes it so narrow. And in response, many people grow impatient. They don't want Jesus to set the pace for their lives because they believe they're ready for all kinds of things before Jesus says it's time. And then as a result, we have broken marriages and broken commitments and broken ministries and broken friendships and broken promises and broken leaders and broken people who all believed they could actuate their own truth apart from following Jesus Christ. Now listen, it may not be the timing that you desire, that you want, or that you think should be, but the perfect work of Christ in your life always resides in his timing, not yours. Let's keep reading, verses 12 through 19. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. 
When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. After his disciples, and his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So after spending the night at Bethany, Jesus returns to Jerusalem only to be interrupted by an insubordinate fig tree, uh, because figs, generally appeared at the same time as the leaves on the fig trees. So it wasn't the season for figs, but the fact that it was full of leaves should have meant it was full of figs. And so uh, Jesus walks over to find some figs because he's hungry, right? And it should have been covered in them, which is why he bothered again to go over to it in the first place for something to eat. And of course, uh, the fig tree is also symbolic of the hypocrisy of the religious people who gave the appearance that they were bearing fruit when in fact there was no fruit at all, just a lot of empty leaves. And so Jesus curses the tree. And if that wasn't harsh enough, when he gets to Jerusalem, he goes back to the temple and out of fervent zeal for the house of God, Jesus starts flipping over tables and chairs of the people who are trying to profit from the temple and he's running them out of the temple complex. And of course, the Jewish people have been wanting some aggressive action by Jesus, but hey dude, it's supposed to be against the Romans, not your own people. So the crowds are having a hard time understanding Jesus, and we know the religious Jews are having a hard time understanding Jesus, as John mentions in his account as well of this story. He says the disciples didn't yet understand what Jesus was doing either. So his closest friends, they didn't get it. The men and women who knew him better than anyone else, the people who'd been with him for years, watching him live out the gospel every day, listening to him teach about who he was and what he'd come to do, it was all culminating into this moment. They missed it. They didn't get it. It's hard to understand, isn't it? Maybe you can understand the crowds, but, but these disciples, and then listen, even the most learned religious men of the day didn't understand what was happening, even though their own scriptures clearly described what Jesus was doing and in the exact detail in which he was doing it from 500 years before it ever happened. Which just goes to prove that Jesus doesn't always work how we want him to, but his ways are always perfect. The fact is, Jesus defied everyone's expectations of himself, even those who knew him the best, right? What, what kind of king secures the victory over his enemy by allowing himself to be killed? Logically, that doesn't make any sense, but Jesus didn't come to satisfy the world. He came to satisfy the Father. And so look, if your greatest desire in this life is to satisfy Jesus Christ above all other desires, Look, you can count on it. There will absolutely be times in your life when other people, including your closest friends and family, will not always understand why you're doing what you're doing or saying what you're saying or helping who you're helping or going where you're going or giving what you're giving. Because following Christ means following a very narrow truth. 
which often looks like the opposite of what we think it should look like, which we talked about at length last week, so won't, won't go over all that again. But the point is, when you follow Christ on that very narrow path, other people will at times question your choices. They will. They'll question your judgment. They'll question your motivation, your decisions, your actions, your wisdom, your direction that you're taking, just like they did with Jesus. And I'm telling you, that is when your metal is tested. Because the perfect work of Christ in your life will often look nothing like what you or anyone else in this life thinks it should. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've been through it firsthand. And for those of you who haven't, you can write this down and post it on your refrigerator for future reference. If you're following Jesus Christ on that narrow path, there will be times in your life when you will be deeply misunderstood by others, even those who are closest to you, just as Jesus was deeply misunderstood, because it is a narrow truth that you're following when you're following him, because you're no longer trying to live your life in step with the world out on the freeway. This is a narrow path, and it leads you to places and people and decisions and actions throughout your life that other people simply will not always understand. And I'll be the first one to tell you, there are times in my own life when I wish Jesus would do things differently than he does, but listen, I'm following him. He isn't following me. Too many Christians think Jesus is a passenger on their journey through life, that it's their job to set the course and then bring him along for the ride to provide the blessings and protection that we need along the way. No, that's not how it works. He's not a genie in a bottle that responds to our beck and call. That's what the religious Jews wanted, and that's often what we want today when we forget ourselves and our place in his divine order. Fact the Old Testament character Job forgot himself once and presumed to question God based on his friend's advice after great calamity had befallen him. Here's how God responded to Job. Then the Lord said, answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. 
Job 38, 1 through 18. By the way, that is just a sampling of God's response to Job. It goes on for three and a half more chapters. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I'm of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. He went on to say, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is the only appropriate response when we presume to instruct a holy and righteous God in how we think he should be working in our lives. And likewise, if, if pleasing people is one of the aspects of your own life that drives you or motivates you to do the things you do, I'm not, I'm not talking about simply wanting to be kind or helpful. I'm talking about being a people pleaser by nature. If, if often you do things to make people happy, even at the detriment of doing what is best, because you understand those two things aren't always the same. Right? If you're a people pleaser by nature, like Job was and like I am, then you're going to struggle at times in your life. I can tell you from firsthand experience, you're going to struggle at times in your life with pleasing God because sometimes doing or saying what is pleasing to God means doing or saying what is anything but pleasing to other people. God made it clear to Job, and Jesus makes it so clear as he demonstrates that in our story today. And sometimes what feels right and what is right are two very different things. The work of Christ in your life, well, that is always perfect, but it's not always pleasing. And of course, there are people every year who leave the church because they feel the message is too narrow, that it excludes too many people, which for them seems, of course, very unloving. Listen, I'm telling you, the most unloving thing you could ever do to another human being is to withhold the truth of Christ from them, no matter how narrow it may be. Pastor and author Adrian Rogers once said, it is better to be divided by truth than to be united in error. It is better to speak the truth that hurts and then heals than falsehood that comforts and then kills. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 20 to the end of the chapter. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And whatever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses." They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another. If we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? 
For they were afraid of the people, for they all held John was a, a really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So again, on their way back to the great city, they passed by the fig tree that Jesus had cursed. And Peter says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered, as if Jesus should be surprised that it actually worked. And so he says to his disciples, Look, fellas, this is nothing. If your heart is right, if you don't have any unresolved sin in your life and being full of faith, you continue to follow me down this narrow road. Forget fig trees. You can move mountains with your faith when you're following me. You see, everyone wanted Jesus to flex his muscles at the Romans. Everyone wanted to see Jesus exercise power over their personal enemies, and they were all disappointed with him because he wouldn't do what they wanted him to do when they wanted him to do it. And so he curses a fig tree, once again, taking authority over the laws of nature itself as if to remind his disciples of not only what real authority and real power look like, but also what the real purpose behind that authority and power actually is. You see, it's not about controlling people. It's not about controlling governments. It's, it's not a political power or a cultural power or an earthly power. No, it is a supernatural power that is meant to produce supernatural fruit in our lives that enables us to feed all the people around us who are starving for truth. It's such a timely lesson because right after they pass by the withered fig tree and they have this conversation, they go back to the temple where the religious leaders question Jesus' power, motives, and authority. They're completely oblivious to who Jesus actually is. And so, of course, they feel threatened by him and therefore they deeply mistrust his motivations. The religious leaders think Jesus is trying to overthrow them when actually he's trying to save them. Right? The crowds of people want him to stir up a war when actually he's trying to bring peace by turning their hearts to God. And his disciples want him to elevate their own status in his kingdom when actually he's trying to teach them how to die to themselves. You see, nobody gets why Jesus is doing what he's doing because every one of them projects their own hearts and their own attitudes onto Christ, which is exactly what we do today. So the Pharisees wanted power, therefore they assume Jesus wants to take their power. The crowds want a war with the Romans, so they assume Jesus has come to wage war with the Romans. The disciples want glory for themselves, and so they assume Jesus came to glorify them and himself. They all project their own flawed hearts and attitudes onto Jesus, just like we do today, which is why everyone was so shocked when he willingly went to the cross because he defied every assumption that people had about why he actually came to do what he came to do. But listen, Jesus doesn't always work why we want him to, but his will is always perfect, even when it makes no sense to us, right? The, the reason no one understood Jesus' motivation for doing what he was doing, which, by the way, was obedience to the Father, Right? The reason no one understood Jesus' obedience to the Father was because they didn't embrace obedience to the Father in their own lives. Instead, they project their own feelings onto Christ, which is what most people do, in fact. And so if they, if they didn't live their lives in obedience themselves, well, then why would Jesus? 
Who does a king submit to anyway? Who does a king answer to? Really, who does the king obey? And yet Jesus denies his own will in obedience to the Father's will in the Garden of Gethsemane. Just before his crucifixion, he's down on his knees, sweating drops of blood. And he says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Take it away. Nevertheless, not my will. Yours be done. Luke twenty-two forty-two. 42. Remove this cup, Father. This is not what I want. But I'll take what you want anyway. You understand? Jesus betrayed his own feelings in order to satisfy the Father's will. It is the very picture of radical obedience to God and it is the motivation behind everything that Jesus did. And of course, if you've been following Jesus for any amount of time in your life at all, you already know how difficult it can be at times. It's so hard sometimes to deny what we want in deference for what he wants, but Jesus could not be clearer on the matter. He said, why, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Luke 6, 46. In other words, look, you, you can't call me Lord if you don't do what I tell you. If, if you refuse to obey my commands, then clearly I'm not your Lord. You understand, confession without obedience is worthless. It means nothing. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven, Matthew 7, 21. He also said, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it, Luke 8, 21. And Luke eleven twenty eight. 28, he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Confession without obedience is worthless. Read the book of James. Listen, it's not about following the rules for the sake of following the rules. That's not what saves us, no. The truth is what saves us. It is a very, very, very narrow truth. In fact, it is Jesus Christ, the truth. The way, the truth, and the life, right? No one, he said, comes to the Father. No one, except through me, John 14, 6. You understand how narrow that is, Jesus says, you get there through me or no way. There is no other way. That's a very narrow truth to have to accept, but you have to accept it if you're going to follow him, which we all know can be terribly difficult to do at times in your life. In fact, when you follow Jesus on that narrow road, there will be points all along the way where you're going to have to betray your own feelings for his perfect work to continue in your life. Because let's just be honest, when we're down, we want him to feel sorry for us. When we're fearful, we want him to defend us. When we're jealous, we want him to bless us, and when we're bitter, we want him to avenge us. You see, we project our own feelings onto Christ, and then we expect him to act on our behalf based on those feelings, but that's not why he works in our lives, okay? His plan for your life is in no way, shape, or form based on your feelings at any given point along the way. And, and uh, listen, by the way, it's not that he doesn't care about your feelings, he most certainly does, but your feelings are not what determines how he works in your life, okay? He works in our lives 
according to his will, which is precisely how we're supposed to follow him, according to his will, even when his will violates every single feeling inside of us. That is a, that is a very narrow truth, isn't it? It most certainly is. There's no room. There's no allowance for our feelings to dictate the course that we take in this life. Only one thing, radical obedience to his will. That is a very narrow truth. And listen, sometimes that can feel very good, by the way. And at other times, of course, not so much. And so when he works, and how he works, and why he works, it doesn't always feel good. But it is always perfect. And so here's the point. Don't despise what God is doing in your life today because he's not working why you want him to or how you want him to or when you want him to because, listen, his work in your life is perfect. Even when it doesn't feel good, even when it doesn't happen the way you think it should or when you want it to, okay, what God is doing in your life today, it's perfect. It may hurt, it may be confusing, Lord, it may be taking forever. Listen to me. It's perfect. And I know that he doesn't always make sense to us. In fact, Jesus doesn't always make sense to us, which is why people have failed to recognize him throughout the ages, and it is exactly why people fail to recognize him today, because we expect him to look like us. But he doesn't look like us. In fact, we're supposed to look like him, which is the very reason sometimes why he works and how he works and when he works can be so difficult because his perfect work in our lives is transforming us more and more and more and more into the perfect image of Christ. So don't despise what he's doing in your life right now. Don't leave the narrow path because it's hard. Jesus promised us it would be hard. No, you just let him keep working. Let him keep working for his purpose, his way, and in his timing, knowing that as hard as it is sometimes, listen, as hard as it may be in your life right now, nothing could be more perfect. Let's pray.